This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. Today's Big Talk is going to be a bittersweet conversation celebrating a couple of lengthy Bloomington histories, and they are radio station WFHB and the career of one of our town's most recognizable names and faces. Now, as you know, WFHB goes on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year and will continue, but this fellow, who has served as music director here since the days of, let's see, um, King Crimson and Thin Lizzy, is soon to retire. Now, things won't be the same around here on a personal level, but this man, through the decades, has set up a music department that will go on no matter who's in charge. His work here will be a lasting monument to him. My guest, of course, this week and next, because, oh yeah, this is going to be a two-parter, what with all these stories and memories of community radio here in South Central Indiana, my guest is none other than outgoing music director, Jim Mannion. Jim, thanks for being on Big Talk. Thanks for asking me, Mike. This is quite an honor. You generally are on the other end of this interviewing uh, duet here. And this is uh, one of the first times you've ever been on the, the catching side, as it were. Yeah, I'm really nervous. I don't get nervous being asking the questions anymore, but um, I'm sitting here and you said an hour, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> how, much, how much do you want to bet at the end of this interview we're going to say, I wish there was more time for us? Oh, yeah, that, that's what always happens. Uh, I've been producing these pieces that, you know, I need 14 or 15 minutes worth of conversation, and we talk for 45, but then you can get the good stuff out of that. WFHB, you, my friend, were one of the founders of this. You go all the way back, let me, uh, just this brief historical moment, 1975, a small group of Bloomington friends goes to Madison, Wisconsin. Hold it right there, uh -oh. Mike. Uh oh, that is revisionist history. It's on Wikipedia, but I'm here to correct that. Oh, do so. The organization was formed in late 1974. The first national conference that we attended was 1976. Uh huh. When Mark Hood, who's now on the board of WFHB after a great career in audio production and teaching at IU, him and I and a woman named Robin Carey, who's had gone on to a big radio career in Cincinnati, who is actually retiring next month, uh, we went to Telluride, Colorado in 1976, and that was... We're getting in the weeds here already, but <laughs> the conference in, in Madison was a little bit more freeform, and there was one before that. I'm thinking back to when I was 20 years old, so give me a second. The conference in Madison was called the National Alternative Radio Conference. 
narc for short. You got to remember this was the <laughs> 70s. And we didn't know about that. When we got the idea to do this station, we didn't know about anyone else doing community radio. So we didn't know about that. But in the, through the following year, we started hearing about uh, stations like WORT in Madison, WAIF in Champaign, Illinois. So they had NARC-2 in Telluride. And imagine going to Telluride, Colorado in 1976. I mean, I could have oh bought a shotgun house on Main Street for $4,000. There was like a handwritten sign in the window. I didn't have $4,000. But anyway, it was really cool to take that trip uh, as a young lad and drive out there as part of a bigger trip. But it was at that conference that, the National Federation of Community Broadcasters was formed. And that's, a, that's an organization that we still belong to that has been an advocate for community radio since then and has done some amazing things in terms of supporting things in the legislature and, and all that that supports this uh, community radio world, which is now like over 400 stations. Back then, they were about... Oh, 15 or 20 stations on the air that considered themselves um, a, a you know grassroots community station, not a college station, not a public station. And uh, we really idolized these people and kept in touch with them and learned a lot from them. Like I say, I got involved with uh, the organization a little bit after it started. The, the genesis of it was Jeffrey Morris and Mark Hood and uh, another guy named Craig Palmer who um, incorporated uh, the nonprofit and got the initial idea. How did they reel you in? Well, I was already involved with WQAX uh -huh. in, in Bloomington, uh, which is a, a sort of a campus community station that was on cable FM. And it was a real predecessor to the musical style of WFHB. It was a real kind of freeform uh, DJ experience there. And I was also trying to get as active as I could with the local music scene in terms of writing for the local alternative press. So I was getting to know a lot of musicians, and uh, Jeffrey Morris and Mark Hood were roommates, and they lived in um, an apartment which was in the garage behind Guilfoy Sound Studios, which was a recording studio. But basically, that's where I got involved, and my big step was going to the Bluebird for our first huge benefit that I didn't organize, I just went to it. Mark uh, Hood, Jeffrey Morris, <clears throat> Mark Bingham, one of the, the, the key musicians at the time, uh, wrangled a bunch of bands to play. I always remember it was January 10th because it was uh, nine days before my 21st birthday. So, you know, I had to use a, one of those uh, little easier to manipulate fake IDs back in the day with no, no picture on it. <laughs> now, you've been quoted as saying, Jim, uh, that at the time that this, this idea is starting to take form for a community radio station here in Bloomington, you've been quoted as saying this was a real creative renaissance going on at the time. Radio was transforming dramatically at that time. Oh, yeah. And I grew up around <clears throat> broadcasting. I mean, I even recorded a local dairy commercial when I was three or four. 
in a radio station in Evansville. My father was in broadcasting. His first job was a sales manager at a radio station. And then he, he quickly moved to television when they changed formats and, and something went on. But yeah, he used to pull us Mannion kids in there and we'd get in front of a microphone that looks like the kind of thing that like, you know, a blues harp player in a retro <laughs> blues band would play like a, you know, a, a Fender off of a 57 Chevy. And I distinctly remember my dad would cue me and tell me what to say. And I looked through the glass and it was just like WFHB. I was in the studio and there was this room where there was an engineer and the dude was putting a needle on the record. I, I recorded commercials directly to disc. They didn't even have tape then. I mean, that's wow. how they did it. That's how they did it. So, yeah, I go that far back. But as far as the, the creative re renaissance of the counterculture of the late, late 60s moving into the 70s, <clears throat> I got my first radio, a really cool shortwave radio, a Heath kit that my dad built me for my 10th birthday. And besides having my mind blown by like what you could listen to from around the world, because we put this big antenna up and all of a sudden, Woo. But uh, as a kid, of course, that was 1964. And I started listening to, there were two top 40 stations in town. And I was just back and forth listening to, to all the, the top 40 music, you know, from like 64 until 67 or 68, when it turned to more of an album format and psychedelic yeah. music and acid rock and all the sort of um, more free thinking creative kind of things that were going on and being a nerdy media kid i also paid attention to reading about these things i was reading uh, in uh, my mom got the new yorker newsweek magazine things like that and i started seeing this phrase underground radio underground fm radio and you know as i've studied it now and came to learn back then and uh, you might know this as well New York City, Los Angeles, especially San Francisco, there were factions in all of these towns that recognized that this new thing called FM radio, which basically had beautiful music and dry educational material on it, was, right. was wide open, especially because music production had just expanded so much with multi-track recording. And, you know, think about Sgt. Pepper and all those really elaborate stereophonic productions. And all of a sudden, there were, it was just open territory. So this new style of radio, which basically is still the way we do radio here, a very conversational style announcer that puts together sets of music where one song follows the other and there's a reason why you're playing those songs in a row. I mean, the sky's the limit, there's a trillion songs. That's just a, an awesome way to get creative with the medium. So there were these stations that I would read about, like, wow, they played Bach, and then they played Coltrane, and then they played Bob Dylan, and then they played, you know, a deep cut from the Rolling Stones. I'm like, I want to hear that. Well, guess what? In Evansville, there was a station that was identified. This is going to sound so hokey. <laughs> so, so this underground radio stuff was going on for two or three years. And I just read about it. And then it got so popular and the corporations were starting to figure out ways to 
take advantage of uh, cash in on the counterculture, ABC Radio, you can look this up and read about it. They decided to start a network of stations called Love Radio. <laughs> <laughs> they had stations in San Francisco, New York, LA, maybe four or five stations, but they picked one Midwestern city that was very bland as a test market. And there's two cities like that in the Midwest that always get chosen, Dayton, Ohio, or Evansville, Indiana. And it's because, especially Evansville is just more isolated. It's a big city, but it's, you know, surrounded by a hundred miles of woods and fields and, and all that. So that was actually on the air when I was 14 or 15. And the way that worked was that they didn't have live DJs all these cool DJs at these underground stations recorded shows and they sent the tapes to Evansville. So every afternoon after school got out until I went to bed, I could turn on this radio and hear that kind of radio when I was 14 or 15. And I got so stoked about it that we lived right across the street from the university of Evansville. And when I was 16, I decided to walk across the street, and try to get a radio show. <laughs> and, and they shook their head and they're like, well, sorry, but you have to be a student. And I was so disappointed. <laughs> and as a side note, that's the reason I've always been a strong advocate for youth radio on WFHB, because I didn't get that opportunity when I wanted to. And, you know, it seemed like a long time until I was 19 and got on WQAX. You know, when you're younger, the years go by slower. But that was a key moment for me because I was good to go when I was 16. Uh, and I was making mixtapes and, and putting songs together. And I wasn't really practicing being an, an announcer or anything like that or playing radio in my room. But I thought about it a lot. You and that gang go to these alternative radio conferences. You've got this idea. It took nearly 20 years for you and the rest of the gang to get on the air here as WFHB in Bloomington. What happened during those 20 years? That could be another two-hour program. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll give you uh, the short story. And, and honestly, um, uh, Jeffrey Morris and uh, Brian Carney are better people to talk about that in detail. But I definitely know the structure of the history is that um, we were just basically learning about the idea from going to these conferences for two or three years and figuring out how we could put it together, what an FCC application looked like by, oh, and I was going to IU at the time, full time, and, you know, also had some part-time jobs, so I didn't have a huge amount of time. And after that 75 period with the big benefit and some initial plans. Some of the key people had to go on with their lives as well. Mark Hood had a lot of out-of-town work doing recording. Uh, Jeffrey Morris had uh, just gotten married and they went to Alaska and he was doing some work up there for half the year. So we did go a little bit dormant right away there, but 77 through 81, I was tapped as the quote-unquote president or 
the organization. So, so that was my most active year in terms of just trying to get things going, figuring out a way to get that FCC application in. I went to the, the FCC in Washington, D.C. and just knocked on doors and talked to people and, and uh, visited other community radio stations. And we put on um, uh, some real grassroots kind of benefits uh, to keep some finances going, like a pancake breakfast. One of the most hilarious uh, incidences, <laughs> incidents was when I had the bright idea of putting on this big acoustic music benefit concert that was be headlined by Jethro Burns, <laughs> uh, 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 who I had met at a bluegrass festival in uh, 78. So I'm real good friends with Sam Bush and John Cowan of the Newgrass Revival, and I used to go on the road with them to just hang out. And uh, uh, we raised $400 at the pancake breakfast. Three days later, we didn't make enough money at the benefit because it was a really cold winter night, and Jethro Burns went back to Chicago with the $400 that we made at the pancake breakfast. Oh, my God. Was that the fellow from Homer and Jethro? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he, was yeah. A, he was a really awesome uh, jazz mandolin player. But at the same time, he was hilarious. You remember how hilarious he was yeah. in Homer and Jethro. That's a side benefit of all this is I get to hang out with, with Jethro Burns. <laughs> uh, boy, he liked his light beer. Whew. But now, see, you, Mike, I'm going off on a tangent here. Oh, just, it's beautiful. Yeah, let, let, let me just keep moving here. Go. There, there was a five-year period where we, we organized some conferences here locally. We had public meetings and, you know, just all that kind of outreach and networking stuff. And it built up to the point, and Jeffrey did the engineering. We had no computers back then, so you had to map it out on paper. But we found a frequency, sent it in. At that time... I was working for Richard Fish in his recording studio and helping him run his record label. And that's where Richard got heavily involved and, and he's involved this day as well. Mm -hmm. And also in that time is when I got married and uh, our first child, Riley, was born in the uh, summer of 1981. Jerry and I were... Um, in that typical mid-20s Bloomington scenario where you have a kid and between two of you, you have five jobs and you're like, uh, how are we going to really do this? And luckily, uh, my father was starting a new video production venture in Evansville. And as much as I didn't want to move back to my hometown, I took him up on it because I, it, I just, it was, it really did turn out to be a good thing that I just had one job. Uh, she didn't have to work for a while. We got to start on being a family uh, with a little more focus. Really missed Bloomington, and we eventually, it, we weren't down there for too long, a year and a half. But I'm getting ahead of myself. My real point is, is that uh, we'd already decided to move to Evansville, and uh, we got some bad news from the FCC that that first application was uh, rejected. Because there were some, it was back in the day when, you can probably remember this, Mike, the audio for Channel 6, if you tuned to the left end of the dial at the very bottom, you could hear your local Channel 6, because that's where they had to put it on the, you know, the master frequency range. Right. 
And it was an issue for non-commercial radio because there's not just one frequency. It's just like a musical tone. There are overtones. There's, there's, you know, resonant frequencies or whatever you call them. And so the issue was potential interference with people watching Channel 6 on in Morgan County or, you know, north of us where they might hear a little distortion on their audio. So that basically left us out of that initial frequency. And it, it, it just seemed, you know, kind of uh, cosmically timed because here I was, you know, changing my life and moving into video production. We all met on the square and, you know, Jeffrey agreed to keep the, uh, the post office box open. We weren't going to give up, but we were going to uh, take a break for a while because we all had stuff to do. And then by 1983, uh, we had moved back to, to Bloomington from Evansville. And that's when Brian Carney, who I had known previously from, uh, from you know, the music scene and, and uh, he was an IU student, he moved. He had spent a couple of years in Madison, Wisconsin. Had been constantly listening to WORT. He already knew about what then was called the Community Radio Project. But he he came on, He came back really jazzed about Community Radio, and we had a a big meeting. And it was kind of a passing of the baton because I was starting a video production business at that point and was on the way to our second daughter, and I just knew it couldn't be me. And Brian, that's where you can take over talking to him about the history. Mm-hmm. But, but we had a number of other applications rejected for various reasons. It's not the easiest thing to do in the world. But finally, in November of 1991, I remember getting a call from Brian, and he told me that we finally got the frequency. and. I went to tears. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, yeah. That was about the time I was getting kind of tired of the mundane video production world as that I was doing fine making money in. But, you know, it was industrial videotapes about sawmill equipment and <laughs> cable TV commercials and, and, you know, videos in grocery stores and liquor stores that tells you what's on sale. And, you know, that wasn't a real creative life for me. And uh, the deal was back in the 80s when Brian took the baton, he was like, you know, this ever happens, you're still going to be involved. And I was like, well, sure, just give me a call. So he called me in November and then of 92 and uh, no, 91. And then it took about another year to put all the pieces in place and get the transmitter built. And we went on the air for 14 months from uh, out on Rockport Road, a transmitter building, what we called Radio Ridge, moved down to the Waldron in 94. And as they say, the rest is history. Jim, I, I have seen a photo of this tiny little cinder block shack, right? You're talking Radio Ridge. Yeah. And in front of this cinder block shack are Brian Carney and uh, Jeffrey Morris. Now, that shack looked too small even for two people to fit into it, but I believe that was the headquarters of the station. If you could have seen that, Mike. And, you know, after all that time out there, 
I didn't get out there that much after we moved into town in 94 because I had driven out there a lot. But I bet since 94, I've probably only been out there 15 times. And every time I look at it, I go, whoa. <laughs> you know, because I think about how pre-COVID, of course, um, you know, the firehouse is busting at the seams. There's, you know, 20 people in there uh, doing all different kinds of things, and the place is humming away. But, yeah, man, we we did that for 14 months from out there. We initially went on the air for about a half day, meaning like noon until midnight, and then uh, once Brian realized that it was going to take us a little while longer to get the Waldron ready, but we needed to build our audience and start being a true listener-supported radio station by asking people for money, yeah. <laughs> um, we went into the morning a little bit from out there as well. I think we came on at 9 a.m. and started doing morning programming. But rough estimate of uh, the number of DJs involved back then, I would say at least 40, maybe 50. And I did some rough math on it one time and calculated how many, you know, roughly how many DJs, how many two-hour programs, how many days. Uh, the round trip to drive out there and back was 30 miles. And I wrote an article for a WFHB newsletter back in the day when we got into town. And I just wanted to acknowledge all the um, energy and uh, time and effort that everyone put in. And the, the article was called Around the World on Rockport Road because it was over 35,000 collective miles were driven on Rockport Road. To to get out there and come back, everybody paid for their own gas. No one ran out of gas. No uh -oh. one had an accident. I don't know if you've ever driven out on Rockport Road, but it's a squirrely run. Really significant volunteer effort uh, from the get-go. And I just think it goes hands in, hand in hand with us identifying the need for this station and particularly a music town like Bloomington, having the need for that kind of uh, musical, what they now call musical discovery on uh, non-commercial radio stations and community stations across the country. We were more than ready to get at it. La, la, la. We're speaking this week and next with longtime WFHB music director, Jim Mannion. Jim will be retiring at the end of this month, May 2021, and we're celebrating his career here and his contributions to the Bloomington music scene. He's the only music director this community radio station has ever had. He was involved in the conception and planning for the station back in the mid-1970s. Jim Mannion is also a musician, a drummer, and he's written about music for numerous local and regional publications. Next week, he and I will be talking about what it's like to be a key member of a radio station's administration, how he must keep his ear to the radio virtually every minute of the day, 
We'll touch on many other aspects of the life and career of Jim Mannion next week at this same time, Thursday, 5.30 p.m. I'm Michael Glab, and this is Big Talk.